1: Richard America is a country where many restless souls have come to live and get a second chance on life. Yeah, I'm one of them
2: actually, Jim. Unlike my sisters who stayed in England when my parents moved back to Britain, I decided to live here in the US and in a sense, I was able to
1: reinvent myself. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So, but today our show is about second chances.
2: Why Google search condemns former inmates to life Without a job.
1: We're all looking for
3: easy categories to put people in. That's human nature. And we can't eliminate that completely. So, again, with the Internet, the first thing you see, as you're saying, is that mugshot. And imagine that in an interview process where it's a first or second interview, or even before the person comes in. They're not even going to get that interview in many cases. So it's a big problem.
2: Our show is about fixes.
0: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How do we fix it? How do we fix it?
1: The United States has the largest prison population in the world with more than 2 million people in jails and prisons. 90% of those people will get out eventually, but after inmates have served their time and paid their debt to society, too often their pasts stay with
2: them. Yeah, Google makes certain of that. Just type in someone's name and you can learn all kinds of things about them, including the bad stuff, whether or not they have a criminal record, for instance. And in many cases, you even
1: see their mugshot. Our guest is entrepreneur Brian Hamilton, co-founder and chairman of the financial analytics firm Sageworks. And
2: he's a friend of mine. Welcome, Brian.
1: Hey, guys. Brian is also founder of Inmates to Entrepreneurs, an outreach organization that helps ex-offenders start their own businesses. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here.
2: So, Brian, you're pretty fired up about this. Why is it unfair to former criminals to be judged by what they did in their past?
3: Well, I don't think it's unfair that people get judged. I, I certainly don't think it's unfair that people serve... Time. My problem is that when people get out, because of the emergence of the Internet, their profiles may be on there forever. And therefore, even um, after a long period of time, if you search them, you can see that record. And the real issue on that, Richard, is that there is systematic discrimination against these people by employers who always obviously
1: Google people. And sometimes these crimes aren't really that serious. I mean, we're not necessarily talking about you know violent criminals. One of the cases I know you've been involved with was a woman who was convicted of shoplifting when she was 16. Yeah, literally. She's a
3: 25-year-old woman who shoplifted when she was uh, 16 years old. She got a charge. Uh, She didn't serve prison time. But because she's not sort of a well-known person, you do a Google on her, and the only thing that pops up is a mugshot of that um, theft when she was 16 years old. I'm talking about like 9, 10 years later. So that's my real beef with it. Not that people are accountable, but that once they get in the public domain, in Google, they stay there forever, regardless of whether their crime is a small one or a large one.
1: Uh, that's an inter- interesting point. So for someone like you, if I Google you, I find out all about the businesses, the articles right. you've written. I'm but so, someone... I'm
3: very, uh, that's because I'm so famous. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but famous enough. I mean,
1: you have a digital footprint. Right. Someone who who isn't like that the one time their name was right. in the system or in a newspaper or something was the crime they committed. i never thought of that True. as a, as yeah, a problem yeah just think
3: about the average person they're not going to have a google result that's notable so you type the name in they come up with the mugshot by the way the mugshot is very similar to one where if it's a small drug possession it would be similar to something as if they robbed a bank mm-hmm. so that's the first thing you see on the person
2: we did some research um, which, I know which, you which, which, which you we do. usually do that, Brian. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and one of the numbers that popped out at me was was three quarters of ex-offenders are jobless, I think at least a year after they got out of jail, right. and less than half are working full-time five years after they're released. Now, because we have such a large prison population in this country, that's, right. a, that's a big waste. It's kind of a drag on the economy, isn't it? It
3: absolutely costs about $80 billion a year to put people in prison, keep them there. you got... Also another $5 million approximately on parole. So what, what do we want as a society? We want those people back in productive jobs, making money, and certainly not committing crimes. Um, look, with the emergence of the Internet in particular, I would say that they're almost just knocked out of the process automatically even before that background check or a second or third interview. And that's my real problem with it. You
1: know, yeah. there's, this, there's this thing, and I'm very interested in the way the mind works and all these cognitive biases we have. And one of them is the priority bias, where you're really affected by the first thing you yes, see. Absolutely. you know, and it's so, We all are. Yeah.
3: Absolutely. We're all looking for easy categories to put people and That's human nature. And we can't eliminate that completely. So, again, with the Internet, the first thing you see, as you were saying, is that mugshot. And imagine that in an interview process where it's a first or second interview or even before the person comes in. They're not even going to get that interview in many cases. So it's a big problem. Uh, We know it's taken me about 10 years to pronounce recidivism, by the way. uh, (laughs) I still don't have to good slow. But we know that's been a long-term problem in the U.S. But we don't want 67% of the people going back to prison because it costs a lot. And it's very bad for their families. And it's their just,
1: communities. Absolutely. We, we've done a previous show with John path the writer who's an advocate for prison reform. And he points out how devastating it is for many of these poor communities to have so many, particularly of the young men, out of the community for years at a time.
3: Right. This problem existed 20, 30 years ago where people come out, they're not productive, they're not t- having individual initiative and they end up back in prison. So I don't want to say that this has all been caused by the internet um, and the advances of technology, but it's definitely not being made better.
2: Yeah. Before we go on to solutions though, um, it does seem there is something different today than there was 30 years ago before the internet. And and I'm wondering whether you think that, that search has Enable people to more easily attach labels to others. Oh, yeah, of
3: course. Yeah, absolutely. We know that through the internet now. And again, we're dealing with inmates. You're talking about millions of people. And you just type the name in. And for the average Joe, that you're going to get one result. It's going to be a mugshot. And so um, I think Jim's point is well taken. The, the f- first piece of data, the second piece of data you get on anybody or any issue, as a matter of fact, is going to inform how you feel about that issue or that person for a long time.
2: So what can Google do about this? Because Google yeah, is by know. far and away the most powerful I search engine.
3: Look, I don't know. I think, I think that what would be fair. So someone uh, robs a grocery store and they go to prison for five years and they serve their time. And we all kind of agree on that. If you do something bad, you should serve time or you know, pay your debts to society, all this stuff. But there's got to be a period of time after which um, that sort of Internet imprint goes away. By the way, in the U.S., uh, if you uh, declare bankruptcy, which is you know the technical term for that is you stiff your creditors, <laughs> um, you you declare bankruptcy and you just go Chapter Seven. You say, "Look, I'm not going to pay you the debt I owe you. If I owe you a buck, I'm not going to pay you." That stays on your credit report for ten years. Did you know that? Only ten. So after 10 years, no one even knows you've declared bankruptcy.
2: I think America, the United States, was the first country in the world to be so forgiving right. about debt, yeah. that the, the land of second chances, right. that right. people were allowed to screw up in their financial life and then you know, reinvent themselves, go yeah. somewhere else and start even, another business. Yeah, even business. some
1: notable politicians, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, or, so, and a lot of entrepreneurs, I mean, the typical entrepreneurs usually failed once or twice uh, sure. in starting I won't say the they business. all declared bankruptcy, but right. I'll say this, that
3: uh, everybody, in our country. We're founded on the idea that you get the second chance. Excepting African Americans who were brought over here uh, against their consent, obviously. All of us came here, all of our ancestors came here to get the second chance. So we all believe in that. But if you um, possess a, a small drug or, you know, have a small charge against you, shoplifting, something like that, that that is now a digital footprint that just right now, there's no legislation on this at all.
1: And I would expect, I don't have the data on this, but I would expect that this hits minority communities a lot harder. You know, you mentioned shoplifting. I got to say, I knew so many teenage girls who shoplifted and some who got caught as kids. But, you know, white kids from the suburbs who are probably heading off to college, they didn't get charged as severely or they got right. some kind of action. They got wiped off their records. And I wonder if that's the same for kids in the inner city. I Absolutely. doubt it that it well, is. Well, they don't
3: have the same amount of representation. We all know that. So uh, there's no question about that. Uh, in our society today, there's just way too much representation of minorities in the prison system.
2: Well, there's a personal case I know where, where the parents, their son— got into trouble and they just simply paid a lawyer 1500 right. bucks to make sure that that was wiped off the kid's record. It's it
3: it's not a different issue. They're related, but it, there's just like this big dumpster effect that we have with minorities today where we have a lot of young people, a lot of young males in particular who are going to prison. They just go away. We don't see them, but what we don't see is the effect on the families. They're going to be coming out again and then future crimes they're going to commit as well.
2: So, Your group, Inmates to Entrepreneurs, what does it do? How does it help someone?
3: We teach um, formerly incarcerated people how to start low-capital businesses, businesses that require less than $500 to start. That's what we're all about. And that's really that simple. And we take them from day one. You get out of prison. How can you get your first dollar of revenue? And we stay right there. Now, we will work with businesses that are a little bit larger, but... We are all about getting those businesses started.
1: And are there some skills that, that they may need to be coached on? I know you have mentors. I started doing this back in uh, 1992.
3: I would go and talk at prisons and do classes. And um, those things were always really well received. You know, I mean, we really, you, you could just you hit a vein there because people know they get it. They totally get that inmates need help and they might have a very difficult time finding a job. We, uh, about two or three years ago, and it made a big difference, started getting mentors. So we have this group of mentors, coaches. Uh, most of them um, are formerly incarcerated. They know the whole cycle of life there, right? And so we assign every business a mentor, some, a friend. You can call somebody. I did a lot of research on the AA program before um, really getting this thing going. That model is a really beautiful what, model. With alcoholics anonymous? Yeah, right, exactly. It's a beautiful model. So when you come in to our program, uh, we, you fill out a little application, a little one-pager, and we couldn't kind of vet you on you know, whether you're for real and you really want to start a business. And then we assign you to a mentor. So, sort of like um, if
1: you're an AA, you get a sponsor. Exactly. exactly.
3: Because getting back to your question and the point, you find that people want a friend. You know, this is true just generally in entrepreneurship. You got Jobs and Wozniak. You got uh, Gates and Allen and Peanut Butter Jelly. You usually have a couple people. The inmates coming out generally, not always, have isolated their families. Maybe there's been drugs involved, and people don't trust them. They're alone, and we got to get them from. Or their
1: friends might be criminals, so they yeah, need new friends. Even, even
3: worse, <laughs> exactly. Now, yeah, that's right. You're compounding issues, right? But, but the point is that. We want to line them up with a friend, a colleague, someone to bounce ideas off of. And that was one thing that was missing from our program for a long time.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds.
1: Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass
2: How do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our guest is Brian Hamilton, chairman and co-founder of SageWorks. And Brian is also the founder of the group Inmates to Entrepreneurs. So let's talk about that group and and what part of the solution it occupies. I mean, what are you saying to inmates that that perhaps others aren't?
3: In our society, there is two ways that disenfranchised groups have historically become enfranchised. One is through education, and the second way is through entrepreneurship. Now, if you look at the history of immigrant groups, uh, as they came here, uh, maybe it wasn't the first generation, but by the second generation, the the parents would say, hey, look, we're going to rise up, and we're going to get you educated, and and things are going to be better, and that works. It does not work for inmates. Typically, not in every case, but typically, um, the people who commit crimes are not as well educated. So to me, the only way to systematically get them out of the situation they are now is to get them into entrepreneurship. If you come to my door on a weekend, on a Saturday, and you want to cut my lawn, I, I am not going to ask you whether you've gone to prison. I, I don't care. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to ask you where you're from. and all this. You have a lawnmower. I'm going to let you cut that lawn. You're going to charge me $30, $40, whatever it is. And there's no screening, right? Because I just want my lung cut.
2: Well, you've worked with, with inmates. Give us a couple of examples of people who have been helped.
3: Yeah. Every mentor that we have, or I think almost every mentor, um, has been incarcerated. And they got out and they started small businesses. And some of them are now like really great businesses. We have a guy, who uh, one of our mentors um, runs a janitorial service and he's got like 150 employees and he's doing great he was a drug dealer from Durham North Carolina was a drug dealer and uh, Lawrence is doing terrific so it can be done and of course we have a group of very passionate people because they've actually lived the experience
1: in one account of one of these cases, I saw reference to a study from 2013 that said, quote, smart teenagers who engage in illicit activities are more likely to become successful entrepreneurs than equally intelligent, rule-abiding teenagers.
3: <laughs> well, you know, that goes into the history, not just of uh, the criminal justice system, but our society generally. I always say entrepreneurs are kind of misfits. I'm one of them. But um, I think that they think differently. There's certain skills, for example, with uh, drug dealing, you know, you learn how to buy and sell in markets and all this stuff. And it's a bit of a training ground, although I wouldn't, you know, recommend it. (laughs) But I I will tell you this, that I think we got to get to these communities early. We've got to recognize that a lot of these groups are not going to go down the education route. It works.
2: Brian, I'm a podcast listener and I love stories. I want another story about somebody who you can think of—not just Lawrence in Durham, North okay. Carolina, but but somebody else who has moved from possibly a life without a job to something that that's special. Well, there's uh,
3: another guy that we work with, and I I love this guy. He—I actually met him, I think, at Orange County Correctional Facility, and he was in prison. I remember teaching this class, and. Um, You know, we just sort of became Pemp House. He got out, and now he runs this company that basically um, maintains gym equipment, and uh, they sell gym equipment, all this other stuff. And he's all the way through North Carolina now. And he just did that by learning how to fix equipment and then going to these little gym facilities, even facility in in a building, fix the equipment, and then build his book of business up slowly. So um, we have like a gym in our office and I, I don't know what p- other people do, but if a vendor comes to me, someone who's selling something and they say, look, we have a gym equipment maintenance business, whatever it is, I'm not gonna ask them where they went to school or I, I really don't care. I'm gonna say, you know, well, we have a couple of references, customer references. We'll call the customer references and we hire them. We don't look into the vendors
2: personal background. background no, we right? don't look
3: at their that's right. We don't look into their personal background. We look into their business background. If you can develop a technical skill, any technical skill, you can fix a toilet, you can fix gym equipment, you can cut a lawn, any technical thing you can do. You can be a subcontractor or a contractor. You can usually start those businesses for a very low amount
1: of money. One of the case studies I looked at, one of these businesses started by an ex-con, said he only hires former prisoners. And he said they work harder. One direct quote was, Let's just say the people who show up late in my office were not previously incarcerated. The former inmates are the ones who are always on time.
3: They've seen the bottom, right? You see the bottom. You know what that's like. You don't want to go back there. And you are so happy to get a chance, you know. We're sort of a no money down type operation, by the way. We never promote government loans. Uh, We always want people to bootstrap from a very small base of capital but you just need to know something that other people don't know, and it doesn't need to be, uh, you know, landing
1: somebody on Mars or whatever. And you, so you stress this this idea that needs to be a low capital business. Obviously, these people yes. are not in good shape That's to go correct. into a bank and get a loan to exactly. open up a store or something yeah. like that.
3: We don't promote that at all. So what, here's what we promote: someone gets out of prison, and they have nothing, zero. How can we get them their first job? So let's say it's a lawn service. They get out of uh, prison. They have no money at all. They can uh, maybe work a couple of days as a contractor doing something, get $50, 100 $200 together. And now they can go out and start soliciting door-to-door to cut lawns. They can uh, rent. They can lease their lawnmower for a little while until they get a base of business. But we bring them from zero.
2: Now, what can employers do? Is there anything they can do to perhaps not be quite as judgmental?
3: They could look in the mirror. They could look at some of the things they've done in their lives. I know I look at that sometimes. I think about some of the things I've done with customers that were not correct and right in my younger days. This is what I want to say about that. Don't rely on employers to change their attitudes. To me, we've got to encourage them to do it, and we hope we're better people. We hope Hamilton's not a hypocrite, right?
2: One final question. You mentioned... The L word, legislation. Is there anything that that politicians or Congress can do?
3: Yes. We've got to clamp down on Google. If they don't do it quickly themselves, then the the legislators got to get off their butts and do something about it because it is a clear injustice. And by the way, I I know what you guys are kind of about, which, you know, both sides, let's go to solutions. It's not a left versus right issue. It's an issue of like, this doesn't make any sense.
2: But what would they do? What, what would they you?
3: would say to Google, they would say to somebody, they would say to these internet companies, if this 24 or 25-year-old girl shoplifted when she was 16, whatever that math is, after a certain period of time, it gets deleted from
1: uh, so statute options. of limitations online. Uh,
3: yeah, if you, so, you can do it for bankruptcy, you can do it for this.
1: And the EU has something called the right to be forgotten, or Germany does. Oh, okay. uh, that's quite controversial. That. Um, that. um, but basically, that you can petition the social media platforms and Google to um, to basically erase your, they, your profile. Okay. It's you know, Is there's pros and cons it? to it um, right. in that, you know, some of this might be legitimate information that would be important for people to yeah. know.
3: I don't know if how far you want to go down this. Here's the issue if we all, if everyone right here, doesn't matter left, right, left, right, doesn't political affiliation, a religious background, if we could look at individuals holistically, we'd be okay. But in the application process, in the employment application process, that doesn't happen. Uh, It just is not happening right now. Um, People come in. They do a quick Google search. It's a lot easier than looking at an app, right? They see that, and boom, these people go out. So, So we need legislation, definitely.
2: Brian Hamilton, thanks very much.
3: Great to be here.
1: At the top of the show, you mentioned reinvention and, and that, that you have some kind of reinvention in your past. So what's this deep, dark secret? I only know the, the current you.
2: <laughs> I, I knew you'd get back to this. I, 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 may, I shouldn't have said it. But when I lived in the UK, which was during my teens and 20s, and, and wanted to live in this country. Um, I was known as
1: Rick. Well, maybe your friends all thought that, well, you're an American kid. That's what, what Americans ought to be called. Yeah, but,
2: but I wanted to be taken more seriously. And so when I hopped on the plane and, and, and came to live here, I left London as Rick and I arrived in New York as Richard.
1: That's your deepest dark.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another deep dark secret, Jim, and I, actually, I've never—I don't think I've ever told anybody this outside of my my family, and that is that when I was 15, I was caught shoplifting from a store in in England. But because I came from a relatively privileged background, or maybe I should drop the word "relatively," a privileged background. The School intervened, and yeah, I was punished, but i wasn 't thrown out. I was given a second chance, and a lot of kids from far less privileged backgrounds don't get that second chance
1: right you know, we talk about the school to prison pipeline, and you know I think there is um there are so many ways that kids from these less privileged backgrounds get get sucked up into a system that makes it very easy to fall into crime, to get arrested, and then to be treated more severely, uh, probably, than kids from, you know, the the suburbs and, and more privileged areas. But isn't
2: it interesting with this show, once again, it's happened, and I think it's one of the big stories of 2018, Google... There's a problem with Google. It seems that time and time and again, from one social problem or political problem to the next, we're finding out the dark side of social media and the Internet.
1: Yes, but here's what's so tricky. It's... You know, you set up a search engine to find what's out there and find what people are looking for. The algorithms alone can produce these results. You know, nobody at Google said, hey, how can we make the lives of ex-cons even tougher? You know, I don't think I, I mean, I don't think they're virtuous, but I don't think they're like that. And but this but it happens. These systems have a way of evolving in directions that no one predicted. Yeah, at the we're, we're
2: living in the middle of this extraordinary social experience that's changed all of our lives. Experiment,
1: experiment, yeah, yeah, experiment, and, and we're all part of it. Um, so I think that again, this will be one of the areas. I'm at, as solutions go. I'm not sure about like this European right to be forgotten. There's a lot of issues around it in terms of free speech and and uh, and inquiry. And I think we have to be careful that our solutions aren't worse than the disease. Maybe there is something in um, the legal system that that expunges records. It's really t- it's really tough to say. And and I think that. Um, that that alone is not gonna fix the problem.
2: Online privacy and the right to be forgotten sounds like the subject of a, of a future episode. We'll,
1: we'll definitely have to get back to it. I wanna stress one other thing though that came out of this show, and, and I think it's so important. It's the idea of entrepreneurship. So often we look at how to help people and we say, somebody should do this for them. Or, we need a government program to train them, or we need this program that program. That may all be true, but so much forward social progress in this country has always come from people doing things for themselves. And I'm not just saying p- hardcore libertarian, rise or fall on your own. I think we should do everything we can. But sometimes helping someone get started with their own little business might be the best way. There's this great economist, de Soto from Peru, who did a lot of research on the, how the, what the poor contribute to economies in the third world. And he discovered that the poor are incredibly industrious and entrepreneurial, but they have a hard time moving forward in in those corrupt—in uh, in countries where they don't really have title to their businesses and things like that.
2: Yeah, I agree, but I'd also push back a little and say this isn't just a problem for the poor. This is also a problem for small businesses trying to get larger. There are too many parts of the economy where there are monopolies and big businesses not only uh, dominating the business, but then going to politicians and getting them to write the rules yes. that make it more difficult for for entry and let's by speak, entrepreneurs. Yes, so there yes. is a rule for good government here. Right.
1: And so, again, this is an, uh, should be a future show. This And these aren't giant businesses. We're not talking about Google or, or, um, or ExxonMobil here. We're talking about associations of hairdressers who make it almost impossible for someone to become a hairdresser or open a nail salon, which are great entry-level businesses for, for people without college degrees. They make it really, really hard today. It, this is a big issue in the libertarian community that we that we, we should be dismantling a lot of these state rules that keep people like that out of the working economy.
2: It's How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. I'm Jim Meggs. And thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We are a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at our website, daviescontent.com.